Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Again, good morning, everyone. Um, as I said earlier, this class um, is another class on dependent origination within our Vipassana uh, structured study of introspective insight uh, into the three marks of existence. Uh, this is a commentary on dependent origination, um, and it explains how, from ignorance of Four Noble Truths, a mind becomes conditioned to believe its own ignorance. So let me just get into it. Um, this is on the website, but the, the, the link was incorrect in the email. In fact, the whole email for today was incorrect. I'm sorry about that, but I'll try to do better in the future. So again, this is all commentary. All of human life is a Nietzsche or impermanent and so uncertain. Life in the phenomenal world is ultimately unsatisfactory or dukkha because of its impermanence. We, whatever happiness or safety or whatever contentment we might find, if it's in an if it's tied to the phenomenal world, it's impermanent and so prone to, to disappointment and discontent. And that is true. Dukkha arises due to life's in, inescapable, ines, inescapable qualities of impermanence and uncertainty. Uncertainty is an aspect of impermanence, isn't it? No matter how sure we are of what's going to arise or what we deserve to get in the next moment, is uncertainty, uncertain because of all the variations uh, in the phenomenal world. Anything can happen. Arising from a wrong view of life in the phenomenal world, an impermanent and insubstantial self is formed. The Buddha recognized that this wrong view of self is founded in ignorance, and from this lack of understanding, through 12 observable causative links, a, self, a self-established and self-perpetuated belief in a permanent and substantial individual entity arises. So, you know, unfortunately, I'm still at, at prone to give rise to speculative thinking, despite all my massive uh, Dhamma study. And so, like the Buddha, I think, <laughs> I can't help but think, how did we start this? And what, what, not the initial cause, not the root cause of reacting to ignorance, but in a general way. And so... Um, I think it kind of went something like this. The first time we saw a saber-toothed tiger eat our best friend, we started forming an alternative view of life that could fit that in and make sense of that. And so that's, I think, when we started coming up with speculative and magical realms to establish itself because this physical realm was simply just too brutal to, to accept as our human life. The truth of the matter is sometimes the saber-toothed tiger gets us. And sometimes we don't. We even have sayings about this. Sometimes the bear gets you. Sometimes you get the bear. It's just the way life is. And none of that, if the saber-toothed tiger or the bear happens to get you today, there's nothing personal about it. It's just the way life is. And that, that means anything that happens in life, there's nothing personal in that. Except when we start taking things personally, that's when we start conditioning our mind. This view of self, the Buddha described as anatta, meaning that what is perceived as self is a non-self or is not a self. The word anatta simply means not a self. And so the Buddha used that term in an uncommon way. Uh, looks like Becky got bumped out. Um, the Becky used... The Becky... 
the Buddha used those terms in an uncommon way, but really the, the most skillful way, saying that your belief in self is anatta. It does not describe itself. Let go of the views. He didn't use anatta to describe that the self is nothing or that the, the entire human experience is rooted in emptiness. That contradicts everything the Buddha taught, even though that's most of what modern Buddhism resolves itself in, in this grand um, universal scheme of nothingness and emptiness. Often misunderstood, the Buddha is simply stating that what is perceived as a self cannot be substantiated in any manner as permanent, in meaning that it is me, or even the connections that we use to describe ourselves in. I have the biggest house on the block, so that's now my... Um, my persona, how I see myself in relation to the world. And so aren't I glad, doesn't it make me happy that I have the biggest house on the block? Well, I've just set myself up for disappointment because right behind me, somebody else is going to build a bigger house, aren't they? Or something else will happen. The house will burn down, I lose my job, etc., etc., etc. Life will happen. And there is nothing that we can establish as personally mine. No matter what we think, no matter what piece of paper we might have that says it's mine, it can't be. We cannot own anything. Of course, in the legal schemes that we've developed as a society, we can claim certain ownership of things, but that has nothing to do with really what I'm talking about today. This is really what, what is occurring in our mind. This is the essence of mindfulness. What am I holding in mind? If what, and if what I'm holding in mind is framed by the Eightfold Path, completely disentangled from the world, completely experiencing the world in an impersonal way, then I am liberated. I am practicing the Dhamma. As this ego-driven view that was oh that was Rick okay as this ego driven view of self refuses to allow for any other view due to discursive continued thinking it is very difficult and requires conviction to question all hardened views to in order to overcome the effects of, of ignorant thinking so another word for ego self despite um, the modern use of it and our modern um, enamoration with the ego we've established the ego as a separate entity that should be coddled and mollified and explored and analyzed and all the rest of this when the, the ego in this sense is simply an ongoing thinking way of living in the world that is rooted in ignorance of four noble truths it's nothing to be worshipped it's to be recognized understood and abandoned from the need to continually establish and maintain what is formed in impermanence, stress and disappointment arises. Due to, contact, due to contact or input through the five physical senses, reaction occurs and is interpreted from a view, again, consciousness, ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths, that that view lacks an understanding of what's actually occurring. From an individual, lacking under, an individual, individual view lacking understanding of human life in the ever-changing and uncertain environment of Anicca, Confuses con- conclusions arise regarding life, further strengthening wrong views. So again, I, I'm using what's occurring right now and interpreting what's occurring right now from that point of view of ignorance. So I'm simply reinforcing ignorance in this moment, no matter what's occurring. And so human beings live their whole life, in effect, constantly reinforcing their own views, unless they come across something that allows them to recognize that and abandon that. That's exactly why the Buddha developed an eightfold path and didn't just awaken and say, okay, everybody go and meditate a couple times a day and you'll be good to go because he knew how cruel that was. And, and I've seen it in my own uh, teaching career, if you will. 
Um, people, and this isn't everybody. In fact, it's probably a pretty small percentage, but it's a significant percentage. People that practice just meditation can often increase their own psychoses because that's all they're focused on. They've created this very insular world for their own mind. And in effect, they've created a, 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 there's a, a phrase at it, a prison of two ideas. You, this is what the Buddha described in the Gara Sutta. And you've created that in yourself when you decide to do a mind-only or a meditation-only practice because you have no other reference except your own mind, which is probably the reason why you started meditating in the first place. Something was wrong or missing. So you decided that a meditation practice might get you out of it. And again, often a mind-only, meditation-only practice will just reinforce your own conditioned thinking. Now, struck in that, stuck in that thicket of views, founded in wrong view and individual conditioned mind, that a mind is formed. Arising from a lack of understanding, this conditioned mind now determines how life will be experienced and experience as life occurs. So, many human beings become confused of, as to why things keep happening in the way they seem to keep happening. In other words, kind of like a Groundhog Day. But it's really our perception of what's occurring that is having the Groundhog Day effect. In other words, we have this, this perception and this fabricated view of the world that is now forming my view of what's occurring. And so as that view is arising within me, the formation is rooted in ignorance. So no matter what I'm experiencing, no matter how wonderful it is, no matter how awful it is, it's simply not rooted in reality. And it's, it can be a little tricky because am I saying that what's occurring right now is not rooted in reality? No. What, occur, what is occurring right now and, and moment after moment throughout human history is reality. The problem is that a mind conditioned towards ignorance is not united with its body, so cannot under cannot experience or be mindful of what's occurring in this moment. Sorry about that. And again, this is something that the Buddha realized, and again, why he developed an eightfold path, not just a meditation-only path. So jhana meditation unites the mind and the body, but incorporating the other seven factors of the eightfold path keeps that mind in our body and, and directs that mind in a way that can perceive reality right here and right now. That's why I keep referring to the, the Dhamma is practiced in this present moment through wise restraint. And in no other way. There's no, there's no Dhamma that can be practiced in the past and there's no Dhamma that can be effective in the future. Why? Because we live in the present moment. We can, we can project our thoughts to the past or the future all we want. That's the same type of thinking that would, that would project my thoughts into a speculative non-physical life. It's the same type of, of uh, scheme to, to maintain my own ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And it works very well. It's worked for, throughout human history from the very first time we saw our best friend get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. So it reinforces our own view and perpetuates the, the thinking that that's the reality. Yes, yeah, it's exactly that. It perpetuates a wrong view. Um, could, could you all mute, sorry, mute your mic? Somebody has a lot of static on their end. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is the whole point, isn't it, David? The, the utter simplicity of the Dhamma that David just described is just that. It's recognizing in this moment I'm stuck in a wrong view. And the only way to do that is from having that perspective of the Eightfold Path and a mind resting in jhana and simply abandon the view. And I notice often, especially in beginning Dhamma practice, we tend to want to analyze that view, where to come from, etc., but again, that's an aspect of not being gentle with ourselves. We just recognize it, abandon it, and come back to our breath. Excuse me. 
Thanks, David. Okay, this process of 12 causative links, initiating in ignorance and leading to stress and unhappiness or the distraction of dukkha is known as dependent origination. And often that's, it's called um, inaccurately dependent co-arising. There's nothing co-arising. In fact, that even giving it that label implies that things arise in dependence on each other. That has nothing, or in interdependence of each other. That that completely contradicts everything the Buddha taught. Nothing arises in in interdependence on each other. The Buddha taught something radical during his time and still radical today, that everything in the phenomenal world is discrete. There's certain physical connections that everything has. Carl Sagan used to, I I still remember his voice, that we're all from star stuff. And it's true. We, you can you can you can trace our elements back to a star and the, and the the elements that make up a star. But that doesn't mean we're stars. It's simply a description of what occurs in the phenomenal world. There's nothing personal about that either, is there? Unless I make it so. Unless I decide that since I come from stars, star stuff, that I have some consciousness that can that can interpret Pluto or something. It's just nonsense. A human being can't do that. So even though we come from stars, we have no connection to Pluto or the Moon or anything else. Or each other, even though we're all exactly, I guess you could get down at the DNA, level, DNA levels where we're not exactly, but physically, we're all exactly the same. But that doesn't imply any type of unity consciousness or anything else. We're also uniquely discrete, each and every moment. And that is an important thing to understand as far as dependent origination and conditioned mind is concerned. Because, again, from the very first time we saw our friend get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, we started forming this collective consciousness because when there's a whole bunch of us, then the, then the saber-toothed tiger can't really get us. When there's a whole bunch of us united in an ideology, then all those bad people that believe in something else can't get at us. Look at what's occurring today in the world. It's the same exact thought, that I need to protect myself from the, the, the uh, uncontrolled danger and evil in the world, so let me, let me huddle together some ideas that form safety for me, and let me get together with people that think the same way I do. And they can provide a false sense of security through that association, which is what we've been doing for 2,600 years. In fact, we've been trying to establish safety in ideas and ideology rather than understanding what's occurring in the human life in a practical way. Dependent origination is another term that is often misunderstood and misapplied. Continuing to establish an ego personality and develop interdependence clinging or, or clinging where no interdependence exists. Again, just if you want to do something interesting, go home and do a, uh, a, an internet search on dependent origination, and you're going you're gonna to get a quite an education. You're going to get things called interdependence, co-arising, um, all, all kinds of things and interpretations that have nothing at all to do with what the Buddha taught as dependent origination and Paticca Samapada Sutta. The reason why I'm saying to do that is just such a good education as to um, how and why we've gotten so off track from what the Buddha actually taught. And it, it requires um, corrupting this particular te- dependent origination in order to do so. Life is experienced in very determined ways due to conditioned thinking. Reactions to people and events that bring pleasure will all have similar reactions and a similar reoccurring desire for more of the person or the event. And I think I'm going to stop there. I'm just referring to no matter what occurs in a novel way, in a fresh way, 
it's always being reinterpreted from the point of view of a wrong view until we awaken. And so each and every occurrence, even though they're discrete and oftentimes very different, they're experienced the same way and they're often experienced with an underlying level of discontent and disappointment. And that's the under, underlying malaise that goes with a lack of understanding. And if you think about that, just what a, a mind that doesn't understand what's occurring is going to be confused. It's going to be discontent, discontented. And that can only continue as long as that ignorant quality of mind continues. Everybody follow me with that? So that's the problem, isn't it? It's just that simple. I don't understand what's, what's occurring because I don't understand dependent origination. I don't understand from ignorance through 12 observable causative links how distraction, stress, and suffering arises. Lacking that understanding, I am <coughs> compelled and compulsed to continue thinking that way. Why? Because I have no other way of thinking. There is nothing introduced to me to change my way of thinking. Now, what's interesting to me is from, from my earliest... Excuse me. My earliest recollections of self-awareness were always, I didn't realize at that time, were always self-referential and always very confusing. But I didn't understand why until I actually came to the Buddhist Dhamma. But that lack of confusion and discontent did lead me to live a certain lifestyle. Part of that lifestyle was rooted in, in addiction and alcoholism, which is a, an immediate cure for confusion and frustration and anger and everything else. Does it last, does it? And then to fabricated dharmas that seem to, on the surface, answer these great questions that I had. Where do I come from? Where am I going? Who's pulling the strings in this universe? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How can I, how can I secure a better life for myself in the future because this life is full of stuff, suffering, even though it doesn't teach us understanding? All of that drove me out of my mind, out of my body, and out of my life until I came to what the Buddha taught and then until I understood what the Buddha meant by dependent origination, which allowed me to realize the process, the self-induced process that I put myself through that created all the ignorance, all the frustration, all the confusion, and all the self-induced stress and suffering in my life. And it wasn't until I actually started practicing the Buddhist Dhamma that, I, that what I was doing actually had an effect. Actually had an effect. So I spent a great deal of my time from the time I was 26 and sobered up until, you know, maybe say 10 years later, in a strong pursuit to better myself. And I did stay sober, and I did stay clean, but I didn't gain any understanding of what it meant to be a human being. So the important part of that is that I did establish a sobriety, a, a life of sobriety, where no understanding can develop without that. But there was nothing else I was doing that brought me any type of contentment or understanding. And again, it was when I came across the Buddhist Dhamma that that changed. So that's my talk for today. Um, I'm going to go around the room first. But again, folks, um, my screen's a little funny here. I, not everybody's on screen. I think I figured out why, but I can't fix it right now. So uh, I'm going to just call you in the order that, I, that you come up. And if I miss anybody, just holler. So, um, oh, that's me with goggles on. Steve, how are you? Good morning, Steve. Well, good morning, John. Thank you very much for uh, teaching. My pleasure. It's a very powerful teaching. It explains how uh, to arise uh, from ignorance and how you create a view of self. But uh, I 
have some question. My question is kind of like this. Uh, how we can this properly apply to the meditation practice and the daily life? And the reason is uh, even uh, if I sit to meditate and I start to analyze this, uh, 12 links, it's my fabrication. And same situation in daily life. So yeah, I hope I'm following you, Steve. Um, and um, you said the word analyze. Excuse me for a minute. So, de- dependent origination, we can get caught up in, in the 12 links, get caught up in the verbiage, get caught up in, well, where am I now? And um, is phenomena contacting my senses at the moment? Uh, is this a fabrication, et cetera, et cetera. So, dependent origination is taught simply to describe the process and give us an understanding that it is from ignorance of Four Noble Truths and the steps that lead to stress and suffering. But analyzing the steps, memorizing the steps, or any other engagement with dependent origination will prove to be just a distraction. Listen to it when it's taught. You can read it, but don't grasp after it. But what's more importantly is to integrate the Eightfold Path and then recognize, if you can as it arises, the aspects of dependent origination that are coming into play. And that, that's all we should do with it. Um, the human mind wants to, and we're taught to, to learn through that memorizing something is the best way to learn it, and it's the best way to prove that we've learned something, and that's simply not, not the case. I don't want to get into, into, too deep into that. But the, we can memorize the Eightfold Path and memorize dependent origination and memorize Four Noble Truths and memorize the Nagara Sutta, and it will do nothing for us. What is important is to do it, just what you're doing, Steve, is to integrate the Dhamma in this way. Um, and in that way, you'll understand what dependent origination is, and you won't avoid understanding it through over-analyzing it from a mind rooted in ignorance. Does that help, Steve? Yes, it does. It makes sense, because otherwise, if you start to memorize and analyze and even try to observe this, it's create fabrication. Yes. It's going to be a wrong view. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know that we keep coming back to this too, more and more in this saga that the Buddha was the most uh, logical teacher of all time. Everything is logical. It, it just it it falls into place when we understand what it means to be a human being, uh, and that's another way to continue to integrate the Dhamma is realize that. Uh, Alex, how are you this morning? Good to see you. Hi, John. Hi, everybody. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just deep in thought, as always, um, very thought-provoking, and really useful, actually, your image of the saber-toothed tiger, and going, I'm reading Sapiens at the moment, um, so thinking a lot about the evolution of yeah. hum- humans and stuff, and actually your image there is really interesting to think about how we've evolved, um, consciously, if you like. Um so yeah, not too much for me. The, the only thing that stood out towards the end of what you were saying is that you spoke about a life of sobriety before you establish your practice. So do you, do you believe that we need um, to find some stability in our lives first before we can establish the Dharma practice, if you know what I mean? Or, do it, or, or can anyone do it in any moment? Yes, great question, Alex. Anyone can do it in any moment. Um, that doesn't mean that... Uh, People that are addicted to drugs and alcohol, to act, that actual chemical addiction, um, 
will usually not be able to just take to the Dhamma and clear themselves up. You need a little bit of interdiction in the beginning. But I do not, I'm not talking about rehabs or long-term stays or any of that. Most people need, need a, a physical break from their environment, but it's just a couple of days. Beyond that, um, the, uh, there's so, I, I, don't, I don't want to make this a, a, a lesson on addiction, but there's so much misinformation about addiction and how to recover and how to, it, 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 that um, it's almost as corrupt a field as modern Buddhism. But you, in order to do anything, the Buddha teaches us that we have to have a certain amount of motivation or intention. And that's also true about recovery from drugs, alcohol, and any other compulsive behavior. We have to want to change it or we're not going to. And in that way, once sobriety, if you're a drug addict or an alcoholic, once you've established sobriety, and that's established within a couple of days of not drinking or using, by the way, once you've established that, you can take up to Dhamma and it will prove to be very effective in helping you maintain your sobriety, but sobriety first has to be established, and that's what I was referring to. It, it didn't, it, it wasn't years of sobriety that allowed me to practice the Dhamma. It was simply initial sobriety that allowed me. Uh, within a few weeks of quitting drinking, I was looking for different meditation practices. So, again, I hope that answers your question, Alex. Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, Brian, welcome to our sangha. How are you doing? What do you think of your first class? Uh, great. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me. Hello, everybody. Uh, it was great. Um, you know, the, the, the commentary on perspective is something that I, I've uh, been going back and forth with the, the last couple months, and it's, you know, every, everything's got two sides. Everything's polar. And, you know, just because the tiger eats you doesn't mean the tiger is, is, is wrong or bad. Um, it, you know, and it, you know, just how yeah. things affect us, it's not good or bad. It's just, it just is, right? And it's impermanent yep. and it will pass. And, you know, just latching onto that and, and seeing that in a, a daily weekly meditation practices has been extremely helpful yeah thank you brian um yeah i mean it, it, it's uh when we see the tiger eat our friend and we we get worried about how's it gonna what's gonna happen to me that's taking it personally but it also implies that we we learn about our environment in other words learn what time the, the tiger gets hungry and to not be around when the tiger is hungry that's just part of living in the world it's 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 common sense. Uh, and the reason why I'm saying that is, <coughs> many people who, who are um, stuck in a wrong view of self are inadvertently seeking annihilation because this they, because they don't understand this. They don't understand what's going on. So let me get the hell out of here. Let me establish a, a mental practice, a so-called spiritual practice that gets me out of here, right here and right now, and puts me in a speculative, non-physical plane. That I can that that I I can be content in and safe in, that's how we do this. But we do it with everything that that might affect us in a negative way. Thank you, Brian. John, is that goes to the teaching of like lesser pleasure versus greater pleasure? Yeah, give me one second. I'm sorry, David. The lesser oh, pleasure yeah. of security in this wrong view versus the greater pleasure of release from. Speculative views. Yeah, it's so important. Thank you, David. The, the um, a mind rooted in ignorance of four noble truth is is comfortable with what is familiar. So what seems comfortable or minorly pleasurable, less pleasurable, but is familiar, will keep our attention, as opposed to the to the great pleasure of awakening of full human maturity. Uh, 
so you you can even you can look at or understand the experience that if I do this, I might gain this. But right here and right now, I'm safe in my thinking and my, whatever my thinking is that brought me here. And that's why it's so difficult to interrupt that type of thinking because we're familiar with it, we're comfortable with it. Even though the thought may be constantly creating stress and suffering, such as I need to have another drink, I need to have another drug, I need to have another round of golf, I need to buy more clothes, it's whatever it might be. If, even though that's causing us stress and suffering because it's familiar, we continue to do it. So it's a, less, a, less, a lesser pleasure. Thank you. Um, just give me a second. I'm not sure if I missed anyone. Oh, I didn't miss the whole page. Sorry about that. Um, Karen, how are you? Just say hello, Karen. Hi, everybody. Hi, I'm glad you joined us today. Yeah, well, thank well, you for your uh, talk and explanation, and I'll just listen to everybody else. Great. Thank we'll see, you. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Yes. Where am I? Hello, Mary. How are you? Hi, John. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, I like, like what David said that brought some perspective. Um, I think when you can begin to understand dependent origination, which is a heavy lift, um, to incorporate it into every facet of your life can be hard. And the interrupting is what we need to do, the coming back to our breath, yeah. um, thinking about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. We've been so um, well-trained in certain facets of our life to behave a certain way or put our armor up or whatever. And, um, you know, I, I see that happen in my own life. And um, we have to remember the simplicity of what you're saying is that we can overcomplicate everything by analyzing and, and holding in mind the fabrications, right? And then we create that negative cycle. But the interruption is to come back to your breath, the simplicity of pausing, come back to your breath, and hold the Four Noble Truth and the Eightfold Path uh, in mind, because the feeling or the experience or, or the thinking is impermanent and it will pass. And that's the cycle of interruption that we need to come back to when we find ourselves yeah. um, in these negative cycles of whatever it is, addiction or, you know, just, you know, whatever it is we think we need. Yeah. Um, and so it's such a valuable lesson to come back to. Um, uh, so thank you so much for the teaching, John. Thank you, Mary. Thanks for joining us. And I meant to make this early. I, I, I hope to remember to make this announcement. Um, there's a lot of people online today and I'm up against a little bit of a, uh, a hard end. Uh, so let's keep our comments to two or three minutes, please. And I had no reflection on you, Mary. I just meant to say that earlier. <laughs> not, uh, personal. not personal. Good. Yeah, don't take any of this personal. Hello, Tom. How are you? You're a little muted. Can you, is there a chance you can turn your mic up? I can hear you, but just barely. Uh, All right. That's it. <laughs> is that better now? Yep, that's good. Thank you. All right, great. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask um I'm gonna ask a slightly silly question, but it, it leads to I think something a bit more important. Or at least it, it is to me. 
Um, when you're meditating, John, this is the silly question. Do you listen to your own meditations? Um, oh, it's a- uh, now, the reason, now, the reason I'm asking that, okay, is because I found your guided meditations obviously very, very useful, and they've really helped me to um, simplify my practice and stop, you know, grasping for the latest meditation technique or whatever. Yeah. So it's been really, really helpful. I've just noticed in my practice recently that um, I tend to go through autopilot a little bit, and I listen. I've listened to your meditation so many times now that I'm kind of. I feel like I'm meditating for time. Like I. I'm like, okay, I've, I've got to, you know, I really want to meditate twice a day, so I'm going to get through my 10 minutes. And then sometimes I come out the other end and I'm like, oh, I feel like I've just been on autopilot the whole time and I haven't sort of actively been listening to your words or I've just sort of, you know, I've focused more on just getting the getting the 10 minutes of, of meditation rather than the insight that might come from, which is the whole purpose of, of meditation, I guess, is the concentration and the insight. So um, I, I'm just curious, like, do you... Do you recommend at some point maybe going off the recordings and just having a bell instead and then just really focusing your mind on what is the purpose behind the meditation? Or do you suggest some other sort of technique to sort of rein me in and make me a bit more focused as I meditate on on the purpose of the meditation in the first place? Yeah, it's such an important question, Tom. Um, so we, we engage in jhana meditation, not for concentration and insight, but for concentration, period. Insight may arise, but if we're looking for insight, then we're distracting ourselves in our meditation. That's something that, um, I don't know if it arose through there, but it's, that's the Vipassana movement, the modern Vipassana movement tied to Theravada yeah. Buddhism, teaches just that. That's, that's kind of their whole point, um, which is a complete distraction away from jhana meditation. So that's, that's the first thing. Um, using the guided meditations, I think is important, or I know is important in beginning practice, if you really understand Four Noble Truths, if you have no difficulty recognizing that you're caught up in your thoughts or your thoughts and your feelings and coming back to the sensation of breathing, then I would say you don't really need the guided meditations or maybe you just want to use them once in a while. Um, but be very careful about substituting anything else for the, the, the jhana method. In other words, you, you mentioned that you meditate for 10 minutes and you seem like you're focused more on the 10 minutes rather than what's developing, I would say if you're meditating for 10 minutes and when you find that you're caught up in your thoughts, you come back to your breathing, that's a, that's a successful jhana meditation session. And you really shouldn't look for anything more because that's a very subtle aspect of grasping rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And it can, it can act in a subversive way against your practice because it, it's a, a self-referential ego self that thinks that it should be doing something more, especially something as magnanimous as meditation it should be something that you know brings me something great and wonderful rather than something as great and wonderful as a well-concentrated mind so, a great question tom i hope that helped thank you john jen how are you uh i'm uh, hi <laughs> hi everybody hi john hi, um i've really i'm really enjoying listening to everybody's comments this morning and the questions um uh, and I'm so happy that John, you're feeling well, and you, everybody's back at the meditation center, yeah. and just I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, and I don't, I think I'm gonna, I don't really have much more to add. I'm really enjoying these questions and the answers. So 
Me too. Thank you, Jen. I'm glad you joined us. Hold on, folks. Ah, I can't get the... John, do you want some help capturing everybody? No, I just got it. Thank you, Jen. I couldn't get the page to, to turn. Who's there? Rick, how are you? Good to see you. Hi, John. Hi, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. I came on a little bit late, and I apologize, but when I realized I wasn't going to make it on time, I did one of your guided meditations. Oh, uh, so I was meditating with you, just not online. Oh. And um, it's funny, I'm, I'm actually still in the Truth of Happiness course, and guess what part I'm reading right now? Just finished reading the part on dependent origination, and you guys are talking about dependent origination, and uh, there's another guy that teaches a class every third Sunday, or Sutta study, and guess what we're talking about tomorrow? Dependent origination. Origination, and we're the same same suttas. So, I'm getting a lot of exposure. The interesting thing is that this is the last part of Buddhism that I ever wanted to deal with because I was afraid I was going to have to memorize it. And I'm so happy to hear that I don't. Uh, so I haven't made any attempt to memorize it, but I am starting to see the, the you know the connections with that. It is very interesting. So that's really about it. I um, my my meditation was very active this morning, but the good news is I am getting back to recognizing when I'm starting to go off and coming back in. Thanks. Thank you, Rick. Becky, how are you? Good to see you. Good morning, John. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> I was a little distracted today by technical difficulties. So um, I just want to say that I always... I always enjoy hearing more about dependent origination because it is so really so thought provoking. If you really sit and you really think about dependent origination, uh, you can you can realize and understand so much yeah. um, about how to sort of go about your day um, yeah. and what is happening in your mind at every moment. So it gives you, it, it gives you an insight just to think about the concepts of dependent origination, yeah. which I think is... Um, is very very helpful of course yeah the, the the image that came to me um when i was reading it yesterday was that my ego is this giant ball in front of me which i can't see through or around but every once in a while through the dhamma i can step aside and look around the edge of that ball and see what is really occurring <laughs> so that's what happened to me. So thank you very much, John. I enjoyed it. <laughs> thank you, Becky. <laughs> Brad, how are you? Good. Good to be here. Uh, how are you feeling? I'm uh, feeling better. Good. And uh, uh, yeah, good to be here. Thank you for your teaching, and I'm gonna take no silence. I'm glad you're here. Is there anybody that I missed? Okay, um, we're going to go around the room, but I'm up against a, uh, we've got to be done in about seven minutes, so make it quick, folks. <laughs>
Ron, how are you? I'm good. Um, always good to be back in the Dependent Origination. Yeah. And um, I'm going to take another time. Thank you. David, good, good morning. Good morning. I'm great, John. Thank you. Glad you're here. Kevin, how are you? Very well, Tom. So great to be back here at the center. And um, yeah, just thank you for getting it to us straight. I mean, just the, the fundamental. There should be a new term for the type of Buddhism that you teach, which is, I mean, it's just Buddhism. It's just what the Buddha taught. And thank you. It's very fundamental. Maybe I should start pure. calling it that, but then you get people who think that the word fundamental is something yeah, bad. You know? <laughs> what are you gonna Thank get? you so much. Thank you, Kevin. Hello, Adam. Good to see you. Good morning, friends. Great to see all of you, all of you here. This is wonderful. Just a quick question, John. Sure. Um, you're talking about ego and how um, uh, it's something, you know, it, it's kind of ex- it exists, but it does, it, it's not a problem to start attaching things to it or use it to, to define ourselves or something like that um the idea that it's there but we can kind of ignore it and shove it aside um <coughs> is, is interesting and I'm, I'm curious to know more about that or if i'm misper- no. misperceiving that no that, that that is kind of the whole point of the buddhist dhamma and this study by the way to understand anatta to understand the ego personality and how it how it um commands and controls our lives unless we understand it and again, so you could say that the process is about understanding the ego. The reason why I don't often say it that way is the ego is, is almost a um, it's almost a scientific fact, and it's described in 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 permanent terms and in um, in permanent effect. And of course, the ego, like everything else, is impermanent and uncertain. Uh, so, giving it any more relevance than just that than than a um, uh, a repository for ignorance is always going to create difficulty. But th- even that, that phrase might sound harsh to people. My ego is a repository for ignorance. But when we also understand that we should take that phrase with gentleness, we don't judge ourselves harshly for having an ego, do we? So we don't. Can I add even, something, John? Yeah, sorry. let me just finish this. So we don't even like to be told from someone like me um, that the ego personality is problematic because it's us. We don't want to face it, but, you know, there it is. And, it, and so we, don't, we, we can then get our, let our Dharma practice get into justifying um, psychological models against the Dharma and how this is helpful and that isn't. It's just two different things, and that's the best way to look at it. We're not, this isn't therapy, and if you're in therapy and you find it effective, keep doing it, please. It's something completely different. There's nothing like the Buddhist Dharma anywhere in the world including how it teaches the, or treats the ego personality. Was that helpful, Adam? That was great. Thank you. Okay, thanks for the question. Michael. Hi, John. Uh, I like your talk. I think you, hit, I think you got right to, the, right to the matter of uh, uh, how this whole thing looks. And uh, I see it like uh, from dependent origination. I, I just look at dependent origination uh, is where... The ego self is formed with self-referential views yep. in the feedback loop. Um, from that point on, when the ego self is formed, our mind is deluded. So the way we interpret all that we encounter, and each one of us has our own unique experience in this world, but everyone, every time we encounter something through the sixth sense space, we have to realize that it's from where uh, 
it's from a deluded mind. It's from a self-referential mind. Once consciousness becomes aware of itself, we become self-referential. So everyone has their own their own movie here that's playing out in front of us with like all the things that have has happened in my life and happened in your life and everyone else's life that is here. Everyone has different slides that make up this, this story of their life. Yep. Okay, and that's that's what we're entangled we're entangled with. But if we're if we're understanding the pan's origination as it's Buddha has meant for us to understand it, I do believe that that's where our understanding of impermanence comes also because we fabricated yep. this entire existence and who we are and we strive to maintain it through through anatta, anat, you know, the not self. And this is what we're locked into. So until yeah. we actually recognize that uh, a good thing to understand again is like where you say like uh, again Self-reference occurs in, in pent origination. That's that's a real good starting point, a good good place. Yeah, to, uh, it's where we start and where we end too. It's the resolution too. Yeah. So that's all I just wanted to. Say. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Well said. Hello, Julia. Hello, John. Um, I think maybe what I'm going to say is probably similar to what Michael was saying. Um, dependent origination. I look at it as like the psychological process of, a, of the deluded mind and how it interacts with the, phenom the phenomena world. Yep. and tries to make a permanent self. And so, through Jana, Jana kind of dissolved the first three links slowly but surely. It gives us yep. the peace and equanimity that we need, the space, so that we can actually hold in mind the Eightfold Path and then stop the process of dependent origination. Yeah. You know, But um, the, the whole dependent origination, it's not something you have to memorize. Um, I know Rick was concerned about memorizing because once you understand it, and you can actually see your how you how you interact with stimuli, and you can see yourself going through that process. Yep. And so it it, it, it comes natural after a while yeah. once you have that understanding. So. Yeah. Thank you for saying that, Julie. It was so important for Rick and everyone else to understand. Uh, the, just the, how this practice is practice. You do it by by the direct experience, by learning it, and then applying it. Becky touched on uh, how in the moment we can recognize that this is an aspect of dependent origination arising. But that's just an information, so it's a reference point to, okay, this is ignorance, I abandon it. That's all it is. So, thank you for a great class. Um, and it was so wonderful to be back in here. Um, I can't think of any, any other announcement. So that's it. Uh, if you're going to join us on our retreat, please sign up as soon as you can. Uh, it begins April 22nd, 22nd to the 25th. Um, and uh, there's two folks online that probably never saw me with these goggles on. I, I use, they, they help me see. So if in case you were wondering what I'm doing with them, they just help me see a little bit. So uh, we'll finish with meta as we always do. So find your relaxed meditative posture and become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. And this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, 
those living near and far away, those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Peace. See you all. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.